0: Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now let's buckle up and write. Have you ever wondered about the intersection of fiction and nonfiction? You'll want to stay tuned to our interview today with Stacy Ennis. Stacy is a bestselling author of the book Growing Influence, a leadership fable that offers readers practical advice on how to develop leadership skills through the growth of her main character. Stacy kicks off today's interview by talking about how she integrated key messages typical of nonfiction writing into her narrative. But that's not all. Stacy is also a ghostwriter, and she draws on that experience to share her hard-earned advice on the craft of storytelling and the challenges of developing your unique voice. She uncovers the power of a great hook, explains the importance of a throughline in both fiction and nonfiction, and offers practical tips on how to pinpoint your book's thesis. And for aspiring speakers, and if you're writing a book, there's likely going to be some speaking in your future, be sure to stay to the end of the episode. Stacy offers a recommended formula for giving an unforgettable talk that will leave your audience inspired. Take it from her. She spoke on the TEDx stage, which is so impressive. We are so excited to have Stacy here with us. We hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did. Welcome, Stacy, to the Writing Podcast. We are so happy to have you here today and learn more about who you are, learn about the book that you've written, and also just your area of expertise. So thank you for being
1: here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation.
0: You're a best-selling author and a book coach for thought leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about your book, Growing Influence? Where did the idea come from?
1: So I wrote Growing Influence with. My co author, Ron Price. And originally, he had brought me in as a writing partner on a different book. So he was working on a book about the three dimensions of leadership. And through working on this book, he came to me with an idea to actually co author the book together, to really own it together and to create it as a fable. So Growing Influence is a leadership fable. It's about an older retired CEO and a a younger. Woman in technology who's having a hard time really reaching where she wants to go in her career because of gender bias, and so through their relationship and through her really going inward and focusing on self leadership, she's able to to make some changes that ultimately get her where she needs to be. And I think for both of us, I, I would imagine Ron would give a similar answer that what. I think is really special about the approach of this book is that it is really focused on self-leadership. And we have a lot of things out in the world that talk about techniques and things that you can do as a leader, but we don't, I think enough focus on who we are on the inside, what our values are, how we're showing up in alignment with our values, how our character, like what is our character as a person and how is that showing up in how we communicate with everyone around us, whether it's the workplace or our family? I think for for me, that is what's really when I reflect on that book and how meaningful that project was to to me. That book what that book is to me that is what really resonates still.
0: So tell me about the process of writing a fable. As I mentioned before, we actually started recording. We're working with a gentleman who is working on a fable to illustrate a leadership principle and. I would imagine like the author we're working with was doing, you had to draw on strategies of fiction writing. And can you tell us about the process that you used to develop the structure and narrative arc of your fable?
1: It was so fun. Let me just say that first of all, because before working on that book, I had only done really nonfiction. I did study memoir in my graduate program, and of course, I'd done lots of short stories and personal essays and things like that. But one thing that was really cool about it that I wasn't expecting is that I'm also a, a trained artist. So I studied visual art in my undergrad, along with writing. And something I've always craved in writing is that, like, physicality of the work. And one thing that I loved about working in this space is that I got to create like worlds in my head. And so I had that feeling of working in a 3D world, but also creating the words to go with that 3D world. So that was a really cool experience in in writing that book. With the actual shaping of this book, because a, a fable is not just a story, it is a story. The story is absolutely critical, but you also have to integrate the key points that you want to work in, what the core message of it is, what the through line, not just of the story, but also of the the message of the book is. We originally outlined a traditional nonfiction book. And then it just felt like this is where I mentioned earlier that Ron came to me and had this different idea. It just felt like it was going to be kind of like most other leadership books out there. We knew that this the principles were really special, that we didn't feel like it was packaged in a special way that was going to be really resonant with people and, and really different and so because we had started that way we started with the foundation of this original nonfiction book and then we built the story on top of that starting with characterization so we started with interviewing particular people that were that we drew on for the characters in the book and then we built the key story out in the way that we outlined it, was in short paragraphs for each chapter, and then a bulleted, like layered outline under- underneath for all the key points that we wanted to work into each chapter. And then, of course, assessed for narrative arc and really paid attention to where that like highest point of emotional resonance was and how we were building to that, how conflict played into all of that. So, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's complicated writing these types of things, but it was a great challenge and it was a lot of fun.
0: So a business book, you would think most of the scenes take place in business settings. Is that true? And how do you make that not boring or how do you make it come alive?
1: Ours took, takes place largely in a coffee shop. So and, and it was inspired from Ron and me actually meeting in a coffee shop and having a conversation. It's modeled off a real coffee shop. And, and then it does take you into some other places, like into her workplace, to a birthday party at her home, at the main character, Emily's home. But I would say the bulk of it is in that coffee shop. And I think a public environment like that gives you a lot of opportunities for interesting characters or interesting things to happen alongside the the main kind of narrative. And through the teaching, the the book is largely dialogue-based. And so that's how we were able to work in some of those lessons through the conversations between the two characters.
2: When you made that decision to move from nonfiction to a fable... With the foundation of the nonfiction, did you find that the fable ended up being a shorter book, a little bit tighter, smaller book? Two questions. What were some of your models for fables?
1: Well, to answer your first question, yes, it was shorter. It did end up being tighter. And I think part of that is you're not integrating all of the research and case studies and extra stories. You really have this key anchor for the book. And to be honest, I actually didn't use any existing fables as a model. I used fiction as a model. And I drew off of, I mean, I actually wouldn't even be able to point to a particular book. I'm just a, an avid reader of novels and studied this also in my, in my programs. And so really what I was leaning on was my study of, of novels, not my study of fables. And so in that way, what we really focused on was good characterization, good storytelling. We didn't want it to be dense literary storytelling. We wanted it to be something that somebody on a four-hour flight could start reading and finish reading by the end of the flight, and they would be entertained and moved and hopefully transformed by the end of it. So we really leaned on like simple, clean, engaging and and connected storytelling. That was really important to us when we were crafting the book.
0: So you did do professional writing. I did read that for a portion of your career. So can you tell us a little bit about how your professional writing informed your book writing as you developed as a thinker and writer?
1: So I will, I have to say first that I actually started as a high school language arts teacher. So that was the first thing that I did. And I found that teaching was very rewarding personally, but I had a hard time with the amount of effort that I put in compared to the financial reward on the other side of it. And so that was that was challenging for me to put all of myself into this thing and to not get to see like the needle moving in a way that a business can do that. And I, I love business for that reason. When I came out of teaching... I went pretty quickly into the world of magazines. So, and there's a whole lot of things that I could tell you just for the time of people listening to this discussion, I'll I'll skip a lot of it. But eventually I ended up helping found a regional magazine and as a managing editor. And then I eventually joined Sam's Club, had a healthy living magazine at this time And I joined as a proofreader and eventually worked my way up to executive editor of that publication. And we had a readership of about 11 million readers at the time. And we covered tons of celebrities, but also pharmacists at different locations of Sam's Club. And, you know, we had a really kind of wide range of pieces for that. When I first joined this world of magazine writing, it was very stressful because I had come from, in the past, it would take me like two weeks to write a first draft of a basic article and I would hem and haw over it and I would not be happy with it at the end. And then when you get into the world of magazines, they're like, I needed that two hours ago. Like, where is this article I just told you about? So I had to learn how to really produce quickly. And I realized that the only way I was going to be able to do that was by learning a formula for writing a good article quickly. So what I did is I pulled a bunch of pieces that I looked to as good articles. I thought they were well-structured, good storytelling, clear. And I studied them and I made a diagram of, like like a visual diagram of what a good article is. I used that to write articles, to be able to write them in a couple of hours instead of a couple of weeks. And what was interesting from that is that I found that that has been a foundation for most pieces of writing. And the the core of it is that when you start a work, when you open that work and you give it some kind of idea for the piece, that there needs to be a through line that carries through all pieces of that work. So in an article, that's paragraphs. In a book, that's chapters. And then there is at the end of that work, there needs to be a connection point back to the beginning. So there's like this kind of loop feeling that happens for the book as a whole. It also happens within chapters and it also happens within sections. And so basically this kind of formula that I learned to help myself be able to produce work quicker, I've been able to apply to other work to help understand it in just a little bit more of a structured way
0: what happens if you're struggling with that through line? Say we have a listener today who's saying, I'm struggling to get that through line in these three paragraphs of this article or in this, in each section of this chapter, what would your advice be to that person?
1: Well, let me first say your editor is your best friend. So if you're really struggling working with a developmental editor or Somebody who can come in and give and like help you see what you're not seeing can be absolute gold. So, certainly in a short form piece, that can be especially helpful, but definitely in a long form piece like a book as well. In the book world, what I find a lot of times when people are working on nonfiction books and they're struggling with the core message of the book, which then becomes that through line that carries through the entire work, is that they're missing the Clarity of the bigger purpose behind the work. So when I'm working with people, we always start with vision first. We talk about like, what is like, where does this book fit? If you were to draw a line from here, point A to there, point B, which is your bigger vision of impact, where does this book fit along that trajectory? Like how, what's the job of this book? What is the right book for right now to help you get from here to there? And a lot of times by answering that question, they're able to tease and pull out like what that actual core message of the book is. And once they get the clarity of that big picture core message, then they're able to pull that through. And then they're always also able to ask that question, like, how does this connect to my core message? And that helps them kind of build that flow, that that hard to de- hard to define flow but you feel it when you read a work that's the foundation of it
0: i would imagine when you were doing these articles especially that you learned the value of a provocative or gripping hook and mm-hmm. the same is true for chapters in books books in general you want that opening sentence to be a great hook can you help our audience understand what a great hook is
1: through all of your years of experience across the different types of writing? I mean, we have such a short time to capture people's attention, to get them interested and make them want to keep reading our work, whether it's to your point, an article or it's a book or a reel on Instagram, whatever it is that you're creating that you want to get people engaged in and keep them following along. So In writing, a lot of times we're using techniques like starting in the middle of action in a story, like really bringing somebody into a moment so that they are not confused. This is where I find that people lose this a little bit. We're not trying to confuse them. We're trying to get them curious. So we bring them, when we say in the middle of action, that means that rather than, you know, one day I was riding my bike in the park when a dog jumped out and tried to bite my leg. Rather than starting it like that, you would start it something like, I looked in the distance and a German shepherd was racing across to toward me. It could do something like that, where you're like in the middle of the moment, in the middle of action. So that's one way. Another way to start out a chapter or a book, an engaging way is to give a Thought provoking fact or data point. So give something that's immediately intriguing, immediately interesting to your reader so that they're curious. That's the key point, they're curious to learn more and to continue reading on. But the other thing you also have to think about, especially if you're writing a short form piece or you're creating a short form piece, is that you then have to really quickly give them the point of the piece that you're that you're going to, that they're going to read. Because they have to answer that question, like, why would I want to keep reading this? Like, what's in it for me? Am I going to be entertained? Am I going to be inspired? Am I going to learn something? And so getting them quickly from that, like, hook in, the interesting thing, to the buy-in of reading the rest of it, engaging with the rest of it, it's it all has to happen in a very short dance to keep them reading and keep them engaged.
0: So I would imagine that you have a well-developed voice because you've been writing for so long. And and, and I would imagine when you were writing more commercially for Sam's Club, your voice probably sounded a, a little bit more generic. But if you were to give advice to people about developing their voice, what would that be? And how actually do you define voice? It's such a kind of an, I don't know, an abstract term that people struggle to understand.
1: I feel like this is a central struggle for all writers. It certainly was for me, you know, still is like, we're always evolving with our voice. I like to think about voice as you amplified. It's like you with the volume turned up a little bit, maybe a little bit more articulate. Some of us, I mean, we want to show up on the page and, and feel like we're, we're showing up as ourselves, but like the best version of ourselves, right? Like, but authentically ourselves. And so when I'm coaching people through developing their voice as a writer, what I really encourage them to do is to just like go wild on the page. Like don't listen to that inner critic that's telling you that that joke's not funny or you sound ridiculous or whatever. Just like let it, let it go on the page, like really lean in because you can always edit that back later. But typically, especially when you're writing a book, it takes until you're I find it's like chapter three before you even hit your stride and start to have a sense of how you want to show up in this book. And it's really normal to go back and rework entire chapters, entire sections. Some people really only discover toward the end of the book how they really want to show up with their voice. So that like the only way to get there is through exploration. It's also through sharing your work. It's through putting it out in the world, seeing what people's reactions are, learning through that. And then the other thing that I would say is I, I really struggled in the beginning. To your point, Melissa, I was a ghostwriter for so many years. So my job was to have other people's voices. Right. When I ran Sam's Club, I wrote 50% of that content and it was for different people for every piece. So I had to be like a chameleon. I wasn't Stacy. I was Bob or Cheryl. And It was really, truly hard for me to then try to shift and have my own voice. But one of the things that I have found and I've been learning and journeying through just like in a speaking environment, just like in our conversation now is like have a darn opinion. Like it's okay to have an opinion. It's okay to be funny. It's okay to show up fully and to take up space, your personality to take up space in your writing.
0: Here's a question, where does good writing and voice, where do those two intersect? Because I think you can have a strong voice and not be a great writer and you not know really know like how to manipulate sentences in a certain way to have the most effect or how to even place sentences in a certain order to have the most effect. So where do those two intersect and do people need to master voice first or good writing or in tandem? Can you talk to that point?
1: Well, I think that question also to me begs the question of what do you care to develop? Because I think for some people that are writing a book that's maybe part of their business or marketing or maybe it's just that one book that that's on their heart that they want to write. It may not be so important that they hem and haw over the exact nuance of how they're how they're showing up on the page because they can work with an editorial partner that can help them really bring that to life. But for writers that are looking to develop voice, I mean, I think that the best way to learn is, again, just to not to be repetitive, but to to publish, to get reactions, to get feedback, to work with an editor, to get their input doesn't mean they're always right, but you can learn a lot through other people's reaction to your work. Am I coming across the way I think I'm coming across on the page? Is that resonating? Is does this the way that I, I thought this was a funny sentence, but My editor said it sounds awkward, so they clearly missed the joke here. Why? Is it my period here? Is it the way this is structured? The other thing that I often point people to if their writing is flat is cadence. So one of the easiest things that you can do to make your writing feel flowier and really have that like good feeling to it is to vary your sentence and paragraph lengths widely. And I find a lot of times when writing is falling flat, that's where it's it's missing. Sentences are mostly the same length, paragraphs are mostly the same length. Those are the type of techniques that you learn through getting feedback on your work, through working with an editor, through reading books, those sorts of things. So you mentioned
0: that when you were a ghostwriter, one of the primary struggles was to become the voice of the person for whom you were writing. What other struggles did you have with ghostwriting? And also What were some of the principles that you took away from ghostwriting that you applied to your your own writing? Did it have to do with research, being doing really great interviews? I'm curious what you could apply.
1: There's so much. I think people when they especially people that go to work with a ghostwriter, they think that they're like gonna just send the ghostwriter all of their voice notes on their phone and like their website, and they can just write the book for them. I I literally have heard people say, I have recordings and a lot of content on my website. Can you write a book? that is just so missing like what a ghostwriter does a ghostwriter comes in and the way that i like to think about it is whoever the person is that's seeking the ghostwriter probably they've spent a lot of their life developing the thing that they want to write the book about right like they could be in medicine they could be a family business owner like you you both work with they could be somebody who has a groundbreaking idea in leadership let's just say and so they have spent their whole life working on this thing and getting good at this thing. That's what the writer has done. The writer has spent their whole life generally or a lot of their adulthood developing this skill. And so they're coming together and they're marrying their skills together to create something that's greater than either of them could have created on their own. When I was a young ghostwriter, you know, like in the first few books, I've, I've now authored or co-authored 17 books. So I'm working on number 18 right now in the first books that I wrote, I had to really learn how to draw out of people the things that they weren't telling me. And I had to learn how to make people comfortable really quickly with me to help them trust me because I am trustworthy, but they don't know that in the beginning. I had to learn how to keep my energy and attention focused because sometimes when, no, not, not sometimes when you're interviewing for a ghostwriting project, we would often be a full week of interviews from morning until afternoon with like a small lunch break. And I'm just like asking questions and listening the whole time. It's extremely exhausting. I mean, not in a bad way. It's just your brain is like wanting to go to sleep at the end of it. It's very tiring. And then I had to develop systems. You might get a theme here. I'm very systems driven. So I learned really quickly with the first book that, wow, there's like 3 or 400 pages of transcripts and I have to put this into a book now. I need a system for this. So I have all kinds of systems now. And that's what I use in when I help people write their books to have give some system to the it's not about putting in all types of ideas and out comes the same type of book. It's really about organizing ideas and organizing the project. I'm big on project management. So those were all the things that for me initially when I got in I was like oh my gosh, I have to write a book now. And this is just transcripts. Okay, what am I going to do here? Let's make a system out of this. What did that system look like? Can you tell us a little bit? From a system standpoint, I think this will be very helpful for anybody that's working on a book, whether it's ghostwriting or a regular personal book. I I really started organizing. I came up with what I call the um, creation and production framework. I work within the creation portion of this so it's simple it's you're going from ideation to outlining to writing to editing knowing that it would be really nice if it was that smooth it's always there's all these lines going everywhere it's always a little more jumbled than it sounds but I also built in that vision piece onto the ideation so the way that I work through books now is I start with the vision I have actually visioning activity I have a visioning guide on my website, stacianus.com resources. I have a bunch of free guides and there's a visioning guide on there. So we work through that. And really it's about building the book in from really high to getting a lot of like clarity and structure around it. So I work through a sticky note process that is like a little crazy and wild in the beginning, but slowly takes shape. We start building little buckets and those buckets end up growing. Like we end up with like maybe one big bucket that feels like the book. And then we start to give shape to this group of sticky notes that then feeds into, and I'm talking over a lot of things, but hopefully this is making sense into, I have a template for a book outline. So we use that template to build out the book concept. Then from there, we work on a reader persona. So we get really crystal clear on the one reader for the book from there we build out chapter descriptions based on i have some education that i created around book structure so what kind of what kind of structure does this book need to achieve the purpose of this book and then build out the chapter descriptions and then we build down from there to the more detailed plan and so it's very like step by step in how it's built but it starts really big and it gets very specific for the ghostwriting piece, I also have a whole like lettering and numbering system with folders that we use within the team that just helps us. We put within the actual outline transcript labels like a letter and a page number, so that we can quickly find what we need to find. So we do a transcript review and then piece and piece that all in there, because otherwise it's just a big blob of words without any without any system behind it.
0: Where do most writers authors that are writing their own book not ghostwriting. where do they get it wrong in the system if they don't have a system is it they i, mean, I know from our experience where do they get it wrong but i'm curious from your perspective where do they get it wrong
1: well there's two pieces number one is they do not spend enough time on the idea and the outline they there's i think we've romanticized the idea of book writing that you can just like sit down and the book will come out and then people feel like a failure when that doesn't work that way. But the fact is that well-developed outline allows you to be creative. It's it's counterintuitive, but a lot of planning and structure and organization actually lets you be way more creative. The other piece is that people think that they need talent and skill when really they need consistency and discipline. Yeah, you need the skill. That's important. Talent, meh, you can get people to support you in developing things. But it's not, it's not very exciting to say this, but it's true. Like you just need to sit down and do the work consistently at, you know, the same time with the same kind of rhythm and process to it. And there's good neuroscience to back that up. But I think people lose that piece because they get really excited, they get into it, and there's a lot of steam, and then they will hit. 5,000 words, 10,000 words, sometimes 20,000 words. And they're like, what did I just write? I have no idea what this is. I don't know what to do with it. Also, nothing else is coming. I guess I'm a failure. I guess this book isn't any good. I'm going to move on. And I think that's sad.
0: Kate, how would you answer that question?
2: For me, it's always thesis development, going to say, which is a big bucket. There's a lot of things that you could fit the vision that you talk about, but we always have this process. We call it Breaking down an idea into a subject and a complement. And, a, you know, an idea has two components to it. And it's because people are focused on the subject and not the complement. So, you know, I might be writing a book on, I'm going to write a book on fly fishing in Montana in the fall. And so they get lost in that. And they, because they'd really not answered the question. So the the, the subject is, what am I writing about? And then, Course, the compliment is what am I saying about what I'm writing about? And that second question, what I'm saying about what I'm writing about, my opinion is if you don't focus on that thesis development, really working through, which it does morph over time. Your idea does change. Sometimes it'll change as you write, which is okay. But if you're not clear on that upfront, it's it, gosh, it's so hard to write a compelling book because it ends up being general. And I think I think we're all worried as writers that our article our, our ideas are too specific. We want to make sure it reaches the entire mass, you know, the entire universe. And as you know, that which is most specific is most universal. So I would probably say thesis. Yeah, what about you?
0: That's what I was going to say. So, yeah. Which goes back to the idea, the big idea, which is what you were talking about. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about, you were on the TEDx stage. How did that happen? And how hard is it to get there? I'm sure... We have so many people who that's a dream, but they have no idea how to get there. And it seems elusive.
1: I have some old posts that I, I will send to you if you want to include them in the show notes. I, I think one of them is called how not to get selected for TEDx. And then I have a series <laughs> on like, how to get selected for TEDx. The first, I actually applied twice. So you have to apply to be on TEDx, on the TEDx stage. And it's, there's like a whole round, there's multiple rounds to being selected. And one of the rounds involves a, well, at least for me, it was like this big, long boardroom table with the whole board on one side and you sitting on the other side, just like trying to not, you know, be nervous while everybody evaluates whether they're going to choose you. The first time I applied, I, I was not thinking about the, the people that I wanted to impact with them. I wasn't thinking about the message. TED is an idea worth spreading. It has to be something that other people care about. My first pitch was self-serving. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember when I got selected the next go around when I applied, I looked back on my pitch and I remember thinking like, well, no wonder they didn't pick me. Like I, this was not about them. It was about myself, which I'm not a egotistical person, but I just didn't understand. It was about my own content, my own, you know, it wasn't something that was resonant with other people. The next time I applied, I really focused on what is an idea that I feel really passionate about, that I have research I can back up, and that I think could actually impact other people. And so that that was a really important piece for the pitch. And then I prepared really well. When I went in, you have to actually give like a verbal, and every TEDx does things differently, but in Boise, we had to give like a verbal pitch, which was in that conference room. and. So I did a lot of pre- preparation for that. And then I, I think, again, I, I looked beyond my own business, my own my own personal goals. And I really thought about like, what is that thing that I care deeply about that I want to share with other people? And that's the idea that I was then able to share.
0: We just interviewed Ann Janzer a couple of weeks ago, and her whole idea is being a servant author. And I I hear that in what you're saying. It's how can you serve a community with your ideas? And it's not about you. It's not self-fulfilling. What was the title of your talk or what was it about?
1: The talk is on how to raise brave kids. And it was really an exploration of how, how gender bias shows up in how we parent boys and girls to be courageous. And what courage actually means and how we can apply it in a more equitable way with how we raise our children. And it was really interesting because as part of preparing for the talk, I did a lot of reading, a lot of just reading, a lot of research and and pulling it together. And I was able to draw an inspiration from, I mean, what, why I asked the question is I had a, a daughter and I felt really confident raising her. I like, I felt like I knew how to do that and then i had a son and i was like oh i'm not really sure what this like what this means like how do i approach him in a in a way that's going to raise him for my version not the warrior version of courage but the version of courage that means that you show up to something that you're fearful of with like an anchored sense of self and a willingness to do something anyway even though it scares you and then also to have the emotional reflection piece of that which is as the research shows, not what we teach boys to do. We teach them to be emotionless and strong. We teach girls to be emotional. And I feel like I wanted to know a way that we could bring those together where there is strength, but there is also a connectedness to your emotions. And that as parents, we could really help our kids become brave individuals, brave humans in the world.
0: Sounds so good. I hope people go and check it out. I know that you went into the TED Talk not wanting it to serve you, or that wasn't your, my, your primary reason for doing it the second time. But ha- did it serve you? Did it increase your influence? Or did, did it simply extend your thinking and help you become a better thinker, communicator? What did it do for you?
1: I mean, it was a very challenging thing to take on. It was a lot of work, a lot of I, I'm sure I shed some tears during the preparation of it. I worked with an amazing coach. Her name's Nancy Buffington. And she really helped me. guide I, I was struggling with like that, to your point, that thesis of this talk. Like I knew the the main framework of it, but I didn't know how to get it really tight and really clear for the audience and tell a really cohesive story. I struggled because there was so much research. It was so hard to pull all of that together. And so honestly, I think my biggest, actually, there were two things. One of them is probably going to sound a little weird to listeners, but that's okay. I'm still going to tell. One was that I grew as a speaker. I became a much better speaker. I mean, infinitely better than I was before I started this experience. The other part is that as part of TEDx, they also gave us a session with a wardrobe stylist. And the, the woman that I worked with, her name's Laura Tolley completely changed my life in and it might sound I don't know how this will sound to people for me it was transformative to think about how I can prepare myself as like it's like almost like branding and clothes as your wing woman and how I could dress myself for these opportunities in a way that made me feel so good and so confident and like I belonged there And I think also at that point in my life, I I had just had my second child and I was in this like weird identity exploration of like, I'm a mom, but I have these goals that I want to work toward. And I have these business things. And I was just trying to find my place in the world and to work with Nancy and Laura and to really kind of like take ownership of my own message to dress myself intentionally and show up in a curated intentional way that I owned was incredibly powerful. And that completely changed how I showed up for every other speaking opportunity, every engagement from then on.
0: How do you use speaking engagements in your business, in your book writing? How do you use it? Because it sounds like you do quite a bit of it.
1: Yeah, definitely a lot more in-person before COVID and then COVID hit and it's been an interesting world uh, of speaking. But I certainly do a lot of speaking for, you know, I go on a number of podcasts like this one. I think it's so wonderful to have this conversation and to get to just show up and talk about things that are important to, to listeners. But certainly I've done keynote talks as well. I've had the opportunity to lead workshops for major conferences. And I think for me, one thing that's really important, and I hope that any authors listening to this that are like, I don't want to do social media. I don't want to get on stage. Like, I just don't want to do that. The way to think about this that has been really impactful for me and has really moved forward my business and my own impact is that point that we talked about earlier about it not being about me. When I come to a stage, I don't feel stage fright anymore i used to i feel anxious in a positive way like a nervousness to do well but i've been able to come out of my own head because i realized to your point like i'm there to serve i am not there to highlight myself i'm not there to look good i from you know to to be liked i'm there to serve the audience i'm also there to entertain them that is part of speaking whether you're giving a how to talk or you're delivering a keynote, I'm I'm there to give them something clear that they can take away. I'm there to respect their time, which is our most finite resource. And so because of that, what happens when you show up in that way is that you form a relationship with every single person in that audience, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people. And the people that have been in my little community online, the longest are people that have come to talks that I've done. And I really think it's because of that piece of it that really, I think, showing up in a way that is about connecting and serving and bringing value, that you can also do that on social media as well. I was very resistant to that. I was like, ah, social media, I don't want to do that. But when I was able to reframe it and think about, like, I am actually there to serve people in a relationship, that's a very different way to show up. and that i think is the core of everything
0: if you could give us your best tip for speaking <laughs> what what is it besides you've already given us some really good tips like like clothing yourself in a way that gives you confidence and reflects your brand preparing getting coaching is there anything else just strategically speaking that will help somebody give a killer talk
1: i got a text from a friend recently she was having a hard time planning a talk and so she was like what can i do like how can i how can i get unstuck in planning this talk and so i sent her like a formula for how to write how to write a good talk so here's a formula if you're stuck and you want to write a talk that's resonant that's engaging and that's clear so start a, with a story, start it in the middle of action. Do not walk up on the stage and say, hi, I'm Stacey. It's good to be with you today. Like use that first 10 seconds to engage people. Really use it. I know it's awkward at first, but like, just trust me on this. Just lean into that first sentence. So start with a story in the middle of action or start with a data point or start with something that's like an engaging hook. Then give your audience your big idea, whatever the thing is that you're there to talk to them about. Then tell the audience what they're going to learn. So you give them like the breadcrumbs of what they're about to learn in three points. Generally three is about the the rule that I use. Then you talk them through those three points. And as you're talking them through, you also need to remind them what they've learned along the way and connect the dots for them. And then when you get to the end of that talk, loop back to that beginning story and finish it or add an insight and connect back to that big idea. And there's like a powerful talk broken down in a simple structure.
0: I love that. That's so great. All right. Final question. We have lots of new writers, aspiring writers, people who have this deep desire to write a book, but are just paralyzed by fear. Or maybe they're in that middle phase where they're stuck. They've written... 40,000 words, but they feel like they're just wandering in the desert. What advice would you give them to just push past their feelings of being stuck or fear of starting the journey? What's your best advice?
1: I actually brought a quote that I know everybody has heard, and I really love this quote because there's a reason all of us have heard this quote that I'm about to read a portion of, because what, most, what gets in most of our way is ourselves. It's our own self-talk. It's not other people judging us. It's not anything actually external. It's usually within. And so this quote that you two have probably heard from Marianne Williamson, it says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us we ask ourselves who am i to be brilliant gorgeous talented fabulous actually who are you not to be and i get i get chills when i read that quote because i think that we have to have a deep belief in ourselves not in a in not in actually not in a selfish way at all in our service in This work that we're creating, whether it is to entertain, to educate, to inspire, to transform, whatever this thing is, whatever the job of this book is in the world, that a book is actually not ego-related because it's terrifying and our ego is what keeps us from creating it. It is a service to our reader. And I think to this through line that we've had today of really showing up and serving If we can take it out of a spotlight, out of ourselves and our own inadequacies or successes and really turn it around to the person that we are there to serve. And also within us say, hey, like, why not me? Like, why can't I be this person to show up and be fabulous and achieve my dreams and make this like there's those two sides that I think we have to hold I just think that that's such a beautiful reframing when we get stuck on projects like this.
0: probably the best way to end this podcast episode. Thank you so much, Stacey, for being with us. I've loved every second of it. There's so many valuable insights for our listeners to take away.
1: No, it's been so fun. Thank you both for having me. All right,
0: Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. I started last time, so I want you to start this time and give us your word of the episode.
2: So I have a really... Plain word. And the reason I, I chose this word is that earlier in the day, we had a, a call with a consulting firm and we had some conversation about the word align. And I made the point that it's heated seemed, discussions. It was a little bit of heated discussion about this. And I just said, you know, that's, that's kind of a cliche. It's an abstract word that kind of means nothing. And it'd be great if you could replace. The word align with a series of other more concrete phrases that's neither here nor there but i thought you know what i should go look up what the word align means and so that's what i did so the word align means a place or to arrange things in a straight line so to place or to arrange something things in a straight line so she gently brushed the surface to align the fibers
0: it's interesting because the way in which consultants use it is to convey agreement.
2: Yes, there is a second meeting, there's probably more than just two, but it has to do with give support to a person, an organization, or a cause. And in the, in the phrase that's given is newspapers usually align themselves with certain political parties. So when consultants use the phrase alignment, we only want the family to be in alignment or to align I think we all generally understand what it is, but it is kind of an abstract word.
0: And if you think of where it comes from, one after another, I always think of alignment as like in a bunch together. And it's interesting to think of it in its more literal sense of one after another, like you're following in a line. You're nobody's stepping outside the line, which I, I like.
2: Yeah, that's good. That's concrete, actually, thinking about it like that. Okay, your word of the episode.
0: I chose this one because it's yet another word that I pronounce incorrectly, and I will spell it first, and you guys try to say it in your mind. It's F-U-S-T-I-A-N. I I always said Fustian, and it's actually "Fustian." Fustian, 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 and I don't know why... I always said it incorrectly. It's probably because I've never heard anybody actually use it right. Or maybe when I heard somebody say it, I spelt it differently in my mind. But this is why it's so good to learn these words of the episode because now I will say it correctly and I know exactly what it means. And that is pompous or pretentious speech or writing. So John's constant reference to his. Athletic son on the varsity football team was
2: fustian. Oh, uh, that would that would be descriptive of me and my whole. That's right. My kids. I was fustian about my kids who were high school wrestlers and football players and lacrosse players. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna call you Fustian Dave.
2: <laughs> Pompous or or pretentious speech or writing. It's a great word. Would you say that bombastic is a synonym of that?
0: It is. It is. If you look it up on the huh. in the dictionary, it is. A, it's a. It's a synonym. All right, Dave, that's another episode. And
2: what a terrific episode. I
0: loved having Stacey with oh, us. I terrific. hope we have her back again. All right, as we like to end it, always, I'm Melissa Parks.
2: And I'm Dave Getz.
0: Now buckle up and write.